Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Brian Cotton, Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Texas in Houston. Dr. Cotton has published and spoken extensively on the role of beta blockers following injury, particularly traumatic brain injury. Today, we will discuss two articles that he authored on this topic. The first is a retrospective study titled, Beta Blocker Exposure is Associated with Improved Survival After Severe Traumatic Brain Injury. This article was published in the Journal of Trauma, issue, Volume 62, Issue 1, pages 26 through 35, in 2007. The second article is titled, Sympathetic Hyperactivity After Traumatic Brain Injury and the Role of Beta Blocker Therapy. This is a review article that was published in the Journal of Trauma, Volume 69, Issue 6, in 2010, pages 1602 to 1609. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Cotton. Thank you, Robert. Let's start uh, with your retrospective article. Uh, basically, you studied about 420 patients with a head injury, head AIS scores uh, greater than or equal to three, and a hospital length of stay of four days or more. Inclusion criteria included any form of beta blockade administered over for two continuous days. Uh, you used a, um, a query of the pharmacy's records for beta blockers. And you found that the beta block group had a statistically significant improvement in survival and reduction in hospital length of stay, despite the fact that that group was older, had more comorbidities, and actually was more severely injured. So how do you explain that? Well, if you look at a lot of the animal models that were behind this and some of the earlier subarachnoid stuff from Guy Clifton and, and uh, Hortnagel and some of the other uh, guys from the late uh, 60s, early 70s, and what they found in some of their either s small groups of uh, TBI or in their small, small groups of uh, uh, subarachnoid non-traumatic injuries, what they found is that there was an improvement in survival from a global um, attenuation of the sympathetic response. And, uh, you know, as, as you know, the sympathetic system is not just about the heart if you look back to that big schematic and when i talk about this i always start with one of my slides that shows the big parasympathetic sympathetic system split like we saw in med school where it shows every organ that's affected whether that is brain thyroid heart bone marrow kidneys adrenals everything that goes into it and so you're attenuating part of that fight or flight system which again you know, gets back to what we call the Deutschman doctrine when I was a fellow is, uh, you know, is this, is this uh, nature that is trying to take care of itself or nature out of control? To kind of answer your question in a, in a roundabout way, what we think we, we did is we, we attenuated some of the, the uh, sympathetic response that was out of control. We brought it under control by beta blocking this uh, and were able to reduce complication rates. Now, the funny thing is if you go to our tables in there and you look at our complication rates, we actually had similar or even higher complications in our beta blocker group. However, and you hone down on it, we talk about that in the discussion, we actually had 
yes, we did have those, but those are more of a survivor's curse. A lot of the people that never got complications died early that never had beta blockers. And the beta blocker group, if they ever got put on beta blockers, we called it a complication and the beta and put them in the beta blocker group. So all five of our cardiac events, all you know, I think four MIs and one uh, ventricular tachycardia, none of them were on beta blockers at the time, but because they got put on beta blockers afterwards, to keep it pure and clean, we went ahead and assigned them to the beta blocker group, even though at the time you could have said that they weren't in the beta blocker group. So we had a global reduction, we felt, in complications and in, and an attenuation of an, of an out-of-control sympathetic system. And the other thought that kind of came to my mind as I was reading the paper was, I wonder how many of these guys um, who were in the beta blocker not group, the ones that did not receive beta blockade, had a complication because they were on beta blockade prior to injury and that was acutely stopped. And we know that acute cessation of beta blockade and the stress period is associated with worsened outcomes. But then you find that about a third of the group was actually aged less than 30 years old. So odds are they were not on beta blockade preoperatively or pre-injury. Correct. Correct. And if you think about it, and just getting back into you know the, the story behind the story of the manuscript, at the time, uh, it was not a global, global um, practice of our group at the time to utilize beta blockers for head injury. It's definitely something I brought with me when I came from fellowship and something that actually even started as a resident. Um, but it is absolutely not the, the a practice pattern throughout the group. Now, once I started them on it or one of my partners started them on it, like Oscar, it was continued, but it wasn't necessarily um, started without one of us probably uh, initiating it. So it was not globally uh, 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 practiced. Now, that said, uh, again, once they were on it, then they were they were kept on it. As far as the question about the the ones coming in and then having it withdrawn, you, you hit you hit the nail on it. It was a majority of those were young head injuries, and the a lot of the other faculty would say, "Oh, they're young and their heads they're they're just tachycardic and hypertensive. Don't don't treat it." And so a lot of them didn't get it. most of the older person uh, the older or elderly traumas. More of them actually got put on it, uh, uh, even if they. Uh, uh, were, were unknown whether they were on it at home. And so to get back to the mortality benefit that you guys uh, found uh, and has been replicated, what are some of the mechanisms that can explain mortality benefit for the young kid who's got TBI, he's tacking away, why would beta blockade help this kid survive? So if you look at um, a lot, this is what I felt very more interesting. We, we actually put out another paper looking uh, at, at, organ, at, at head injuries and organ failure and head injuries and organ donation. And if you look at isolated traumatic brain injury, patients who come in who have, and we have unfortunately had quite a bit of these in Nashville, a isolated gunshot wound to the head, no other systemic injury, but isolated gunshot wound to the head, and they get that sympathetic overload. 50% of those couldn't donate their hearts because they had cardiac dysfunction by echo. 80% couldn't donate their lungs because they had a neurogenic pulmonary edema component. So there, it, there are, even if you're from the clavicles down or completely uninjured, you've got this systemic response and systemic failure going on from a release of, you know, again, uh, I guess you could equate it to the same types of processes you would see with a, a milder pheochromocytoma crisis, a thyroid storm that's going untreated. So we felt... And again, if you look at it symptom symptomatically or symptomatology-wise, uh, the initial descriptions of this, 
felt it was a either a seizure or a pheochromocytoma type crisis. Then it wasn't that. Then they went on to a thyroid storm. These were the, the old ways before we started recognizing this as being a, something associated with traumatic brain injury. That's what people thought it was. And you would absolutely treat that by trying to attenuate the sympathetic system. So those same end-organ failures, the cardiac dysfunction, the neurogenic pulmonary edema, the, now we're looking at Raul Coombra's lab uh, out obviously in San Diego and, and looking at the gut dysfunction that occurs. And we actually had one of those papers here at our, uh, uh, for our presentations uh, uh, at, at East this year. Uh, if you look at all the just global dysfunctions of all the systems, you get into a lot of uh, multi-organ dysfunction and multi-organ failure with it. And we think that we're able to attenuate some of that stuff and, and get by with some of these. In fact, if you look at some of the old stuff from Guy Clifton and a lot of those guys, they actually went so far as to follow them to autopsy some of their non-survivable traumatic brain injuries. And some of these young kids, even less than 18 years of age, had myocardial lesions and autopsy consistent with infarct, almost as if they had had uh, either an overdose of cocaine or it had a myocardial infarction from coronary artery disease. So it's a pretty, it can get pretty impressive uh, with the uh, catecholamine release. And so then what is the endpoint for therapy? I'm, what am I titrating against? And, you know, and that's, that's something that, you know, Kenji Inaba and myself and Sam Bobby up at Harborview have kind of all kind of talked and batted around doing a prospective trial. How would you pull off something like that? What would be your titrated endpoints? I would tell you clinically, uh, knowing the literature that says it starts within the first five, you know, it starts around day five and is usually over or kind of tapering off by, by six weeks. I follow them clinically and I titrate it up to get reasonable parameters of blood pressure control and heart rate control. I don't assume that I'm going to get them normotensive and normal cardiac completely, but I try to get them almost as if you would do with a burned kid, try to get them, you know, much less tachycardic, much less hypertensive, closer to normal, but not too normal. Cause again, you want to uh, preserve the, the, the cerebral perfusion uh, and then start to taper that off as they start to recover. Um, and again, that, that usually I start tapering it off after the first two weeks, the first two weeks, are the rockiest, they're the most difficult to deal with. And so I'm usually having them on uh, a standing dose and some, what I call sliding scale, uh, labetalol or sliding scale metoprolol that I, that I utilize to kind of, uh, bring them back in. And then I adjust my doses, but I start tapering them off after the first couple of weeks and just seeing how they do. If they have a rebound effect, I go back up on it. Uh, but I try to get them off before or close to uh, they're going to rehab try to get them either off or close to uh, a lower dose uh, as they're heading out when do you start I start them I personally will try to start them within the first uh, 72 hours usually not during the acute resuscitation process but usually within the first 72 hours because you usually start to see the ones who are going to get it usually will start to process the sympathetic storms uh during that time frame if they're still comatose and this is usually when you see it it's usually when they're going from the comatose phase to the a little bit more uh, arousing phase you know their rancho score is starting to go from that one to uh to closer to a two or three when you start to see it so some of them may be delayed but a lot of them will happen within the first 72 hours and if i start to see that sympathetic overload i'll actually start to use it other times I'll actually start to use it earlier is when I'm, I'm having ICP issues that are failing my initial therapies. And, you know, there's some groups like the, the Lund group in Sweden that actually uses a mixture of clonidine IV, metoprolol IV, and an ergotamine and uses that cerebral blood volume management to take care of their patients' 
ICP and CPP issues rather than starting with the fentanyl versed propofol, starting with those adjuncts. So I've actually started to use them earlier, although, again, I'm still traditional and starting with the fentanyl versed or propofol from the get-go. But I will be very uh, quick to start them on uh, some additional beta blocker therapy to try to lower lower their blood pressure, heart rate, and with that, actually lower their ICPs. It's actually a pretty interesting study in physiology when you sit at the bedside and you push some IV labetalol or push you know push some uh, propranolol and watch uh, the you know their, their maps are going to come down and the, and the nurse will start to get a little bit nervous. But then, sure enough, the the ICP the ICP comes down and your CPP stays pretty much the same. So, so let's talk about that last point because sure. that is physiologically elegant. Yeah. Uh, but I think that the trauma surgeon intensivist really needs to understand uh, what you describe, which is more of a hyperemic, luxuriant flow state versus uh, parenchymal edema, which is an underflow, true pressure problem. How do you decide who gets norepinephrine to raise the MAP and who gets labetalol to lower the ICP? And, and if you're wrong, there's a piper to pay. Oh, absolutely. So Again, that's why I'm usually not doing it in that first 24 hours. I'm trying to get a good estimate of what my cerebral blood volume is, what my perfusion's doing. I'm looking at follow-up CTs. Am I having a lot of global edema on that? Uh, and then I'm after, after I've gotten my, my first line, maybe even my second line therapy, and I've got an issue where I'm still hyperdynamic. If my ICP is my overriding issue and, and, and not my MAP, then I'm going after more of you know, a lowering of edema and lower and, 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 and lowering of the, of the overall swelling of, of the brain, the parenchymal injury. If I've got a MAP problem in the low direction, obviously I'm going after uh, vasopressor support. However, a lot of times, and again, it's usually not in that first 24 hours, it's usually 48, 72 hour time frame. You're, you're maybe you've already maxed on your hypertonic or on your, on your mannitol, whichever you're utilizing. And you really have got the patient, you think cerebral blood volume wise, probably in, in, a, in a pretty good state, but you're, now you're starting to get them a little bit on the tachycardic hypertensive or tachycardic and probably still normotensive side. And at those times when I've got my fentanyl ever set on board, I'm feeling like I'm getting a good place osmotically. That's when I'll add those on there and I get a pretty good response from it. And I, and, and again, it, it, it can be kind of nerve wracking for all around you because you're, and, and I, very commonly, I will actually push it rather than have the nurse do it because, again, there's usually some, uh, especially if they've ever worked with me before on that, they'll be a little bit nervous about that. And they'll push it, and it's, it's actually, like you said, physiologically just beautiful to watch it. come. Well, both of them come down, and, the, and again, your, your CPPs will stay the same by, by, and, and lower the ICP at the same time. But, again, it's, it's a blood volume thing. But, again, if you look at the Lund group in there, again, they've got – their, their group starting with metoprolol IV, clonidine IV, and an ergotamine-based drug IV, they're actually going after cerebral blood volume regulation, not really uh, uh, utilizing mannitol or hypertonic as much. They're actually using that to control cerebral vo volume on top of uh, the ICP issues. So it's actually a pretty a pretty good model. And that's actually where I adopted it from. I can only imagine the first time you did this, the patient did great, but the neurosurgeon had a stroke. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. Um, what particular agent do you use? Does it matter? So um, there are a couple of, there's many agents out there. Uh, I know a couple of my, my, my partners liked uh, uh, metoprolol. If you look at the CNS penetration though, all the earlier stuff, the stuff I've looked at uh, and read shows propranolol probably has the best penetration and labetalol probably second best. 
So IV, and this just gets back to not where the one's better than the other, it got back to a formulary issue. When I was at Penn as a fellow, and then when I was at Vanderbilt as a, uh, my first time as a faculty, the, what they had available was not IV propranolol, what they had was PO propranolol, and what they had on formulary was IV labetalol, not PO. So I used propranolol uh, as kind of, and, and again, this is how I kind of teach my residents, I used my propranolol as my 70-30 insulin. You know, I used my labetalol as my sliding scale. So I start them on propranolol PO, and then I use my labetalol Q2 PRN, and then I look at that last 24 hours, and I add up how much labetalol I've used, and then I try to either go up or down on my propranolol or leave it alone based on that. But those probably have the two best CNS penetration profiles. They are the most uh, high, high or lipophilic. Um, the other one, metoprolol, is good, but just, just in my experience, not as good. And the reason I think the CNS penetration is important because, yes, it's a uh, you want to block the peripheral system just like you would with a FIO, but this is like almost having a, a FIO release from inside the brain. You've got this periventricular cerebral equiductal gray matter, and a lot of this sympathetic release occurs from that very midbrain portion and all, again right around the uh, uh, the ventricles and that's where if you can blunt, blunt it there as well as protect it peripherally I think you're getting you know uh, kind of a double d double dip there and I think it's actually more beneficial to do that metoprolol will absolutely protect your end organ but it just in my experience hadn't had as good of a CNS penetration but I still think it's good and I'll tell you Sam or Bobby's group, they use metoprolol exclusively. Uh, Kenji and Ava's group, I can't remember exactly what they're using, but I know Sam or Bobby's group was almost all metoprolol, and I was uh, uh, almost all propranolol. But again, I, I don't think it probably matters. I just know I chose it based on a, what I'd read and my experience being on the uh, lipophilic prof profile. What about the patient who um, has TBI, altered mental status? We can give him a very low GCS score if you want, but is not manifesting signs of sympathetic hyperactivity. Is there a role for upfront profile? Prophylactic. See, that's and that's that's what I think really ought to be studied. That's that's where I think our our, our efforts ought to be aimed. Um, you know, first I think it's about you know finding finding a happy dose to start with, titration and endpoints in the ones that are sympathetically over overwhelmed. And then I think the second group that really ought to be studied is the is the ones that aren't. Is there because because not all trauma patients get it. I mean, we we all know that from our experience. Not all heads act this way. You know, some of them will get like this. Someone will just get a little bit anxious, a little bit um, uh, loose, you know, and, and impulsive, but they won't go through this system. But uh, a, a not insignificant portion do. So I don't know whether or not it's beneficial to actually prophylax them. Um, from a timing standpoint, I don't know that anybody's done a real good kind of a, 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 a almost like a Cox proportional model where you can look at the actual timing of when it actually starts uh, you know, they got it earlier versus later and really di uh, divvied it up that way. So I, I don't know the answer for that one. Uh, I will tell you, I don't routinely do it unless they start to manifest uh, clinical symptoms. Now, I'm not waiting for them to get to 150 on a heart rate, but I'm not starting it when their heart rate's 85, 90. But if they're getting, um, you know, above 100 consistently, I will start very, very low dose stuff. And again, even if I'm not getting the sympathetic support and the end organ support for it, there's so many other benefits to it that, I mean, and it's been used, you know, uh, from a PTSD standpoint, from a mood altering standpoint, from anger management standpoint. So if I can kind of chill them out, uh, you know, again, I've given it to people without head injuries that are just, 
uh, you know, difficult patients, let's just say that. Uh, and I've used it to use that to kind of smooth them out, you know, because again, I've seen definitely in the psychiatry literature, people using it for road rage, for, for anger management issues, for PTSD. So I, I'm a lot more uh, quick to give it if they've got just some sympathetic tone going on that I think might benefit from. So conversely, then you'll also give it to someone who's got a GCS 13, 14, 15, but is manifesting signs of hyperactivity for whatever reason. Absolutely. In fact, again, that's when you'll usually see it. You'll usually see it as their GCS starts to improve. It's usually, I'm not saying always, but usually not the GCS three that you're seeing it in. It's usually the GCS that was three that had some you know, traumatic brain injury, plus or minus some interventricular hemorrhage, and is now starting to wake up just a little bit that you start to get it. That's usually when you'll get it. But uh, And the ones that are the comatose ones that get it, in my experience, again, not not uh, definitely uh, by, by data, but just from experience, I would say they, those get it a little bit later It's uh, if, if they're going to get it at all. But usually it's when they're starting to transition from the apalic stays or apalic phase or what people call it more commonly comatose phase to the more awake and, uh, and getting a little more anxious, uh, agitated phase. That's when you really start to see it. And it comes and goes. It's, it's also one of its hallmarks, the waxing and waning, or again, that's why we called it paroxysmal sympathetic storms. And how often are you finding that you're adding other uh, modulators for neurotransmission, specifically things like bromocryptine? You know, I have not, I personally have not uh, felt like I had to utilize that a lot. Uh, I have utilized it once or twice in my career and that was when I felt like I had good control from a beta blocker standpoint but I was still having these spikes with fever um, <coughs> and diaphoresis that's when I would uh, have implemented that's very uncommon but people people have got experience with it and are happy with it uh, others are happy with clonidine uh, I just have found personally that propranolol usually takes control of most of these guys. Sometimes I'll add a little bit of clonidine, but for the most part, propranolol is a pretty global beta blocker. It's able to knock out quite a bit of stuff centrally. And then uh, just continuing in terms of how to uh, go about controlling these patients, you, you make it sound like your real workhorse up front is, uh, you said Versed, so some sort of benzodiazepine, an opioid, and then you fairly quickly add on beta blockade. Have you gone down the road of, if not clonidine, uh, Presidex? So I absolutely love Presidex. Uh, I utilized it quite a bit at Vanderbilt. I've had a little bit more pharmaceutical uh, pushback uh, from, uh, from our place uh, at Houston. I'm trying, we're trying to work through that right now. But I will, I, if, I, if it was my ICU and I truly ran it and there was no resistance and I was king, uh, every patient would be started on Presidex, not a benzo, based on the data that's out there. Uh, I, I, it's a lot less um, uh, delirium, uh, deliriogenic. I think it's a nice, clean drug. And again, to, it is, uh, not exactly, but it is almost IV clonidine. Yeah. So I, if they get a good response to Dex, I'm very quick to start clonidine on them to transition them off uh, with that. Um, and again, looking kind of again at the Lund therapy, where they were using IV clonidine in Europe, and then the metoprolol getting great results. It's hard to argue with their outcomes, and 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 I think also good to look at from the when people get very nervous and uh, and concerned when you're pushing beta blockers and stuff like that on head injuries. The Lund group uses again metoprolol clonidine and ergotamine goes after cerebral blood volume is giving these drugs that we would normally get. Give us chest pain. Mm -hmm. Looking at uh, being pushed on a head injury, and they're getting outcomes that are as good as ours, if not better, in the U.S. And they're doing it with cerebral perfusion pressures that are in the 50s, not 70s. They're doing it with a lot lower cerebral perfusion pressures. Again, their their thought is it's a lot more about cerebral blood volume. 
That's interesting. So then um, if I can start to kind of summarize a bit, uh, looking back at your article, you basically suggest that when you've got a patient with traumatic brain injury who starts manifesting signs of tachycardia, tachypnea, maybe fever, your first thing is to rule out infection, obviously. Absolutely. Okay, once you've ruled out infection, once you're no longer worried about impending sepsis, then you start going down the road of essentially uh, toning down the sympathetic nervous system using these agents you just talked about. Correct. Um, so <clears throat> just like you said, it is a, it's a rule-out diagnosis, even though we... Uh, Assume that, you know, given our experience that some of these heads are going to manifest with this, I still make sure that we get, you know, especially if it's early, I'm getting a, a quick bronch and I'm getting a urinalysis, looking at lines, making sure the lines look okay. Uh, absolutely working that. And in, in people that have a, a, and again, it's hard to kind of put a, a diagnostic feature on it, but I'm, I'm also very quick to send off a thyroid panel because I've had not a lot, but I probably had about three or four cases in the last five years where they've actually had a thyroid storm or thyroid crisis. Most, I think two or three of those were actually associated with um, pre-hospital meth methamphetamines or cocaine use. But I have actually seen thyroid storms, so I, I'm, I'm not uncommonly getting thyroid panels uh, on them at the same time. And then starting propranolol regardless of whether I have my diagnosis or not because I'm, I'm trying to attenuate the, uh, uh, the hyperdynamic response getting them on a propranolol, getting them on a happy dose, getting them on a dose that's keeping them attenuated, and then I'm starting to start to taper it as we've been on a fixed dose for a while. Almost the same way I would do start to kind of taper or alter an oxycodone or a benzo dose after they've been on it for a while. I'm going to start tapering it off, seeing what I can, how much I can pull off that they will, will keep them happy, pain-free, uh, and in this state keep their sympathetic tone at a, at a, a, good, a good state. And so the questions that remain uh, from, a, from a basic science perspective is more mechanistic, like always. And from a clinical science perspective, you know, the questions we talked about revolved around uh, endpoint of therapy uh, and um, role of these agents in the non-sympathetic storming uh, patient with TBI. Correct, correct. So, I, again, I think, I think there's a good, uh, good supply of animal stuff, a good supply even in the organ donation population. And, again, uh, Ali Salim's group has put out quite a bit. Uh, mechanistically, as has Raul Cumbra. I think it's a good amount of, of mechanistic data. Livingston's done some stuff on, uh, out of New Jersey, doing a lot of stuff on uh, the effect of sympathetic tone and bone marrow suppression. So I think there's a lot of good stuff mechanistically. Now I think it is, how the heck do we titrate this stuff other than just the way that I'm describing it, uh, off of just anecdote and experience? How do we titrate this stuff and then next is who's the right population? Because right now I'm giving it to the one that's sympathetically overwhelmed. But just your average average Joe trauma patient that's got a head injury that's not manifesting it, I don't know that we know the answer. And that, that's a definitely ripe for study. Outstanding. Well, as, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to, uh, to join us today. Uh, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Brian Cotton regarding the role of beta blockers in traumatic brain injury. Um, I look forward to reading many more manuscripts that you seem to put out, if not uh, uh, daily, then certainly weekly, uh, on various topics. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axarani. <laughs>